0: Daniel chapter 1, let's just dive right back into the text, beginning with verse 1. We read, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Aspenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel, some of the king's descendants, some of the nobles, young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace, and in whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Verse 5, And the king appointed... For them, a daily provision of the king's delicacies, and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, from among the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, into Azariah, Abednego. As we set the stage for today's study, I want to begin by imagining what this entire scenario had been like for these four Hebrew teenagers in reference, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Like most of the people living in the city of Jerusalem during this time period. There's no question. These young men knew. They were aware what was happening in the world around them. While the text provides us zero biographical information about any of these men, within the context of verse 3, we know that they hailed from some of the wealthiest, most well-connected families in all of Judah. Like we can say with absolute certainty that these men were connected. In fact, rabbinical tradition claims that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were actually, of the categories listed, some of the king's descendants, possessing a direct lineage to King David through King Hezekiah. Whether or not there's any truth to this, who knows? But what we do know for sure is that in addition to being good-looking, strapping young men, these boys, man, these boys were smart. They were knowledgeable, perceptive, quick to reason, figure things out. The text says they're gifted. And the gifted program, gifted in all wisdom. As we noted last Sunday, these men were the best that Judah had to offer. It's hard to believe, hard to reckon, that these teenagers were not current on world affairs, they were connected. They were in the know. They were fully aware that Babylon had quickly risen to global power following their victory over the Assyrians. The Babylonian army was earning the reputation of being as ferocious as their king, Infamous. Furthermore, I'm sure the table conversation over the last few months had centered on King Jehoiakim. And how his recent geopolitical maneuverings had blown up in the man's face. Jehoiakim was convinced the Egyptians would prevail. And so he double-crossed Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) That backfired. The Egyptian armies were decimated. And now everyone in Jerusalem, everyone in Judea and Judah, they knew that they were likely in the crosshairs. Jehoiakim's miscalculation had placed everyone's life in jeopardy. (laughs) Imagine, just again for a minute, the buzz on the Jerusalem street when word finally reaches, finally arrives, that scouts that were positioned out in the Judean wilderness have confirmed, confirmed your worst fears. The Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, were indeed marching their direction. People. They're rightly frightened. Genuinely anxious. Like, what would happen? Like, how bad would this get? Naturally, as we all know, there is a run on toilet paper at the local Walmart. Then one morning, everyone's fears are realized. Peering off into the distance, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, they extend out as far as the eye could see. Everyone in Jerusalem, they knew they were in no position to withstand a prolonged siege. They knew that there was no way they would be able to defend themselves against the might of Babylon. You might say the night king had arrived and Winterfell's fall was only a matter of time. To everyone's surprise though, and they were all heartened by this, word spread as well that Nebuchadnezzar had to everyone's dismay proposed a deal. Nebuchadnezzar intended to spare the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding region certain destruction. So in what was in exchange for a total loss, this pagan king, he only requests two things. Things he wants to take back with him to Babylon. First, some of the articles of the temple as well as a group of young men who would go back and be trained to serve in his palace. I'm sure that this was a little bit of a bummer. Some of the artifacts of the temple, some of their young men being taken hostage, that's not great, but I mean, let's be real, it, it was better than the alternative. And yet, for the families of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, What was likely an an initial relief abruptly turns to abject horror when they receive word that their sons had been selected by Ashpenaz, master of the eunuchs. I mentioned last Sunday in our lead into the story that Nebuchadnezzar's time in Judah had been cut suddenly short. In August of 605, he receives word his father had passed away. Immediately, his armies break camp, they collect their spoils, and they proceed to make the 700-mile journey across the desert back to Babylon, where Nebuchadnezzar would be formally, officially crowned king. Geographically, Babylon was due east of Jerusalem. As such, this, this trip would require a trek through Jerusalem, The nation of Jordan, northern Saudi Arabia, as well as most of present-day Iraq. And again, I just—I want you to imagine being a Hebrew teenager, forcibly ripped from your home. Imagine being one of these four men. (laughs) No amount of begging, no amount of pleading is going to change your fate. Running... It's impossible. Hiding? Pointless. No sum of money was going to get you out of your predicament. Nebuchadnezzar had given Ashpenaz a command, an order. You'd been selected, and now you had no choice but to comply. As you're being escorted from your home by foreign invaders, you know good and well that the likelihood of of seeing your parents or your siblings ever again is slim to none. You say your goodbyes. Through many tears and final embraces, you savor that last moment from your house. The guards lead you away from the cries of your mother through the streets of Jerusalem in chains. Not only is this a a display of, of force, but it becomes apparent rather quickly, that life as you knew it is over. Exiting one last time through familiar gates, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, you take one final glance back in order to capture Jerusalem and the temple in your mind's eye. With each and every step further away, everything you've ever known grows more and more distant. Never again will you be able to go to the temple and worship your God. You'll never be able to celebrate Passover or any of the other festivals with your your family and friends and community. And to make matters worse, you have no idea what your future is about to look like living in this foreign city of Babylon, serving in the courts of this pagan king. Though it's difficult to say how long, This 700-mile walk across shifting sands and desert terrain took a few weeks at least. Please know, the first thing these Hebrew captives would have noticed as they're approaching the city of Babylon in the distance, first thing they'd notice, man, it would have been the sheer size of the city, the scope of the city, and the breadth of the walls. For these Judeans who had grown up in Jerusalem, a modest city, they'd never seen anything like that. Situated in the fertile basin where the Tigris and Euphrates merge before then dumping into the Persian Sea, the ancient city of Babylon was a marvel. Historical depictions coupled with recent archaeological digs indicate the city occupied an area of about 200 square miles. That would be 128,000 acres. For a modern context, this would make the ancient city of Babylon roughly the size of of present-day Chicago. Amazingly not only would Nebuchadnezzar fortify the outer wall with two additional inner layers, but a Greek historian writing in the 5th century B.C., he describes the walls as being 40 feet tall and so wide that you could have a chariot race four horses deep on top with these incredible fortifications. Plus... plus, coupled with a a continual supply of water that flowed through the heart of the city in the form of the Euphrates, Babylon, this ancient city, it was believed to be impenetrable. You couldn't conquer it. No one would be able to defeat her. Entering the city from the west, through the Ishtar Gate, the next thing that would have caught these young men's attention were the incredible buildings that littered the metropolis. It's been estimated that Babylon had an upwards of 153 temples, with the largest being an eight-tiered ziggurat dedicated to the Babylonian god Merduk. Towered, estimates, 26 stories, massive in that day. You couple these structures with ancient marvels, like the hanging gardens of babylon and you're just beginning to scratch the surface as to what these young men were experiencing as they enter the city of babylon babylon the great the greatest city on earth at the time she exuded power but also ooze sophistication for years even under the assyrians babylon had boasted as being the seat of all culture and learning. Again, imagine you're one of these Hebrew teenagers walking into such a place. (coughs) According to verse 4, these young men were not on a vacation visit. They weren't sightseers. They'd been hand-selected, taken captive, brought back to Babylon specifically to serve in the king's palace. That said, in order to serve effectively and prove themselves useful to Nebuchadnezzar. Like it was crucial, critical. These Hebrew teens learn both the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Uh, This could be translated as simply they needed to be able to speak and to write in Chaldean. Now to accomplish this aim, verse 5 says, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies, or literally his food and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. Fundamentally, the strategy being described, it was crafted to accomplish one central goal. Transform these young Hebrew men into Babylonians. The reasoning rested on the idea that if a young man found a, a better home in Babylon and embraced Babylonian culture, well, there would no longer really be an incentive for that young man to cause any type of problems. If life was good, why upset things? For this particular reason. It explains why Nebuchadnezzar, he would target teenagers. Why? Well, teens that age, 13, 17, they're typically very impressionable. You can mold them and shape them, develop who they're to be. Notice the very first thing Nebuchadnezzar does with them. He's smart, he's shrewd, he knows that these boys have been ripped from their homes. That's traumatic. Just a few weeks earlier. He also knows that they've been forced to walk across a desert by foot. He's also aware they're experiencing a measure of culture shock. I mean, as Jews in Babylon, these young men likely felt like aliens visiting a foreign planet. They're overwhelmed. Naturally so. And to compound, to compound matters, they don't speak the language. They don't understand the language. They're lost. And as a result, they're afraid. They're anxious, they're uncertain. And again, imagine this playing out after a brutal journey. Walk 700 miles through the northern Saudi and Arabian desert. Try that. It's a brutal journey. And yet you finally get to the city. And and you're, well, let's be real. You're fully expecting, now that you've arrived, to be thrown into a dungeon, or some kind of prison designed for hostages. But you're shocked when that doesn't happen, and instead, they lead you to the king's palace. Ashpenaz, who who you're fully familiar with, he instructs you. Boys, you all need to clean up. And because your clothes are worse for wear, here, here. Here's a fresh set of linens. Now, yes, the clothes are in kind of a Babylonian motif, but you're just thankful at this point in time that you're clean and clothed. Then they take you into the palace, and they lead you through the corridors, bringing you, ultimately, into a massive dining room, the likes you've never seen before. <laughs> You have no idea why you're there. You have no clue what's about to happen. But then to your disbelief, they instruct you to take a seat. And without warning, the doors at the far end, they swing open and the table you're sitting at is filled with the king's food, his delicacies, and the wine. And you're told to dive in. (laughs) Imagine that. Instantly. Your fears they ease. Your anxieties are they subside. I mean, you're starving. This was not what you were expecting. But not only do they presently allow you to, to fill your empty, aching belly with the king's delicacies, but then Ashpenaz, he explains that moving forward, a daily provision of what you're enjoying, you would have moving forward. Every day, you'd get to eat at the king's table. You can't help. And there's probably a measure of guilt with the very thought. How many people back home ever get to eat like this? Now, sure. Nothing could change the anger and the animosity you felt towards these people. I mean, they had forcibly taken everything from you against your will. And yet, as you're chowing down, oddly, your resentment is softening. I mean, they're killing you with kindness. You start to think, well, maybe King Neb isn't all that bad. You're a foreign captive, that's true. But maybe, just maybe, your life in Babylon might end up being pretty, pretty good after all. Like, like, understand the brilliance, really, of Nebuchadnezzar's approach. Like, in order to ease these young men who are afraid, so that he can transform them into becoming Babylonian, the first thing he does when they arrive to Babylon as he lets them live like kings. As though Nebuchadnezzar is saying, guys, I know you miss your home, but your new life here in Babylon, man, it's going to be awesome. Like, don't be afraid. There's no need to resist. Chill out, kick back, be merry, enjoy yourself. You have good food to eat and even better wine to drink whenever you want it. It you know was sly about his tactic is Nebuchadnezzar is subtly fostering a dynamic where these men and their new life would require a complete and total dependency on him. Verse 5, we're told what? And the king appointed for them. After easing their fears, gaining their trust, all the while making their lives dependent on him, This transformation process, making them from from Hebrews to Babylonians, well, it would include their speech with time. This wouldn't happen overnight. But their Hebrew dialect would be exchanged for Chaldean. Additionally, over the course of, of what we're told specifically to be three years of training, these men would learn Babylonian law. They would be taught a new set of social norms, new customs. They would be completely immersed into a new culture and a new way of living. Aside from these things, we read in verse 6, Now from among the sons of Judah, and keep in mind, there were a lot more than what's mentioned. These are just our characters. Among the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those, are the, those men will be the focus of things. To them, the chief of the eunuchs... Ashpenaz, he gave the names Daniel, Belshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, there is a lot happening in the changing of their names. Like, for starters, when you keep in mind the entire goal behind all these things was to make them Babylonian, it makes obvious sense why you would give them new names in the Chaldean tongue. I mean, Hebrew wasn't a common language in the ancient world. The the name would sound weird, it would sound funny, and you're representing the king, so it's only fitting you would have Chaldean names in a Chaldean language. And yet, what at first seems to be kind of logical and natural is in actuality much, much more sinister than you would ever think. Like in ancient cultures, names. Names served two important functions. Now, now like it is today, names, well, they identified a person. How you would identify yourself. But a name, kind of different in ancient cultures than it is today, would also serve to, in some ways, define the essence of who that person was going to be. Like It's why naming someone was such a significant thing in ancient times. In the act of naming someone and therefore defining who that person was to be in their future, you are exhibiting a lot of domination over the individual. Dominion. Let me just give you two of what could be many, many examples to illustrate what I mean. In Genesis chapter 17... God comes to Abram and He promises that He's going to grow Abram's family into a mighty nation. That He's going to give him a son of promise. And to kind of hammer home this point, God does something interesting. He tells Abram that His name would no longer be Abram which means exalted father, which was kind of a cruel twisted joke. He says, your name shall be Abraham which means father of many. This is God exhibiting dominion and casting a future, a vision for the man's life. Later in Genesis, after wrestling with Jacob, at the end of Genesis 32, God asks him, what's your name? He says, Jacob, and the Lord says the following. He says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. Now, Jacob meant heel catcher or supplanter, resister, conniver, schemer. Your name shall no longer be that. But Israel, which means one governed by God. And then we're explained why. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. God renames Jacob, supplanter, heel catcher to Israel because something significant had happened in his life in that moment that would set a trajectory for things moving forward. You see this all over Scripture. Now, in giving Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah new names, Two things are happening. Like aside from giving them a name in the predominant language of Babylon, they were stripping from them their Hebrew identity. That was the intention of giving them a new name. Like these men would no longer be identified in like the most basic way as being Hebrew in their name but instead they would be identified as Babylonian. And that's the whole plan here, isn't it? I mean, from a purely psychological standpoint, this renaming was an instrumental tool for accomplishing the entire stated objective. And yet, this all, it actually goes much deeper than just that. In demonstrating dominion over these men by giving them new names, Ashpenaz, don't miss this, he was seeking to redefine who they would be from that moment forward. In much the same way that, that God changed Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah and Jacob to Israel, Ashpenaz, he's copying the strategy. He's trying to define who they would be by changing their name and identity. Daniel. Daniel. The Hebrew word Daniel means Yahweh is judge. But Belshazzar in the Chaldean, it means may Bel protect. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Shadrach means illuminated by Marduk. Mishael means who is like our Lord, who is like Jehovah. Meshach means who is like Aku. Azariah means God is our helper. But Abednego means the servant of Nebu. Don't miss it. Ashpenaz, he does more than strip them of their Hebrew identities. He replaces their name and their identity with a Chaldean alternative that paralleled the divine meaning of their Hebrew name. It's as though Ashpenaz is saying in this renaming, our gods conquered your God. Meaning, our gods have dominion over you, who you are, and who you'll be. You'll see, you see, the, the final stage and the transition, the transformation of these Hebrew men coming to now identify themselves as being Babylonian was changing the gods that they would serve and worship. That's what Babylon always seeks to do. In case you missed it, this man, Ashpenaz, who had been given the job by Nebuchadnezzar of overseeing and training these men. He's known as, quote, the master, and in another place, chief of Nebuchadnezzar's eunuchs. In ancient times, it was normal, customary for kings to take young men designated set aside to serve in his courts and have them castrated. Not only would this keep them from being tempted to sleep with any of the women in the king's harem, but their inability to procreate, to have children of their own would mitigate any chance of them ever acting in a self-serving manner. They had no future, no legacy. Well, we're not given any specific details. The very context of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah being selected and trained by Ashpenaz, who just so happens to be the chief of the eunuchs for the express purpose of serving in the king's palace, coupled with the fact we're never ever told any of these men marry or have children, it leads you to no other conclusion but a difficult one. At some point in this process, these Hebrew men were castrated and made eunuchs. Now, what makes that depressing thought worth our consideration is that castrating these Hebrew teenagers. It wasn't just about making them fit to serve in the king's palace. Though everyone, Hebrew or Gentile alike, serving in such a role would experience the same fate, castration. It would have taken on an entirely different level of meaning specifically to Hebrew men. And why? Their genitalia had been circumcised. It was the express sign of their religious belief. Circumcision. The sign, the mark of the flesh within their very manhood. You see, I think removing that castration, it likely coincided with their renaming for the reasons mentioned. Like not only does Ashpenaz take from them their God-given names and then replace them with tributes to Babylonian deities, but in this barbaric act of removing their circumcised manhood, he's telling them something. He's saying, you've been conquered. Our gods prevailed. In fact, look, The artifacts used in your temple are now being used in ours. From this point forward, your faith in your God, signified by that, it no longer matters. In fact, don't even remember it. You serve our gods moving forward. (laughs) Let, Let me sum up where things are at. Daniel and his friends have been ripped from their homes, their families. They've been taken 700 miles away to Babylon. Upon their arrival, they can't but be in awe of the opulence and the splendor of the city. To their surprise, they're treated as honored guests of the king who opens up their table for them. He'll be their provider, and for the next three years, they'll learn the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Like, at this point, let's be real. Babylon, it had an appeal, doesn't it? Babylon was modern. The ultimate demonstration of might, strength, the seat of all learning, the Silicon Valley of the day, the technological developments. It was the place to be. Nebuchadnezzar was truly attempting to build a heaven on earth, a utopia of sorts, one that could never be conquered. Once more, these men, they had the luxury of being on the inside, the it crew, They'd be able to eat of the king's delicacies of his food, drink the best wine. They would be movers and shakers and influencers on Instagram. And yet, the appeal of Babylon and this plan to make these men Babylonian, (laughs) it hit a colossal snag for Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 we read, But Daniel underline that circle it but daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself one of the interesting things about this book itself like this book of daniel is an assumption that literally every single person seems to make as they approach this verse. Everyone. The assumption is that Daniel purposed in his heart that he wouldn't defile himself because he was just that good of a kid. I'll concede that within this tale, the story of Daniel, his character is impeccable, truly is. With the exception of of Joseph and maybe Job, Daniel is one of the few men in the entire Old Testament in which nothing bad is ever said. No sin, no indiscretions, no bad decisions. His integrity is unassailable. Aside from this fact, lending to the belief that Daniel must have just been an astounding young man, the argument further centers on a premise. And the premise is that Daniel had been raised by godly parents who had imparted to him his godly character now on display. Again, the assumption leading up to verse 8 is that Daniel made a decision to stand firm on convictions he already possessed. I would ask, what if this wasn't the case? What if that assumption is wrong? And what if maybe the motivation for his decision in verse 8 came from an entirely different place? Does it change the story? Oh, no, no, no. I think it deepens it. Like, up front, there are a few problems with this universal assumption. Like, for example, the text provides zero insight into Daniel's upbringing. This is an assumption. His parents are not mentioned nor is there any biographical information or family lineage provided. The other problem with this assumption is that, let's say if it's true, like it would make Daniel an extreme outlier for that period of Jewish history. Let me explain. Now, it's traditionally believed that when Daniel is taken captive, taken to Babylon, In the year 605, he's 17 years old. That's kind of the traditional assumption, the belief. Now, if he is, and let's just say it is, it's true, this would place Daniel's birth all the way back in the year 622 B.C., which would have been the 18th year of the reign of the godly king Josiah, which which means, and it's kind of cool, that Daniel was born the very year the word of God was rediscovered during the temple renovations, They throw this gigantic Passover celebration and Josiah institutes sweeping reforms. You can read about this in 2 Kings 22. Now, what's important to keep in mind about the reign of Josiah, however, and these reforms, they were really, really short-lived. Now, Maybe those events influenced Daniel's name. But don't forget, During his upbringing, in Jerusalem, the prophet Jeremiah was actively ministering. Now, let me tell you why that matters. The scriptures are crystal clear that for the 40 years Jeremiah is speaking for the Lord, not one person, not a single person ever listens to him converts because of his message, or repents. Instead, Jeremiah is hated and persecuted and scorned. Like my point is that if Daniel's parents were godly people, raising a godly son, they were incredibly outside the norms of that day and age. During the reign of Jehoiakim and the ministry of Jeremiah, the Scriptures tell us that there was no one that was godly. It's why they're being judged. If. Instead of operating under this assumption, Daniel was always such an an innocent kid, good kid. If, let's say you believe that Daniel was more than likely, just your typical rebellious teenager living in Jerusalem, when he's unexpectedly taken into exile? If that's the case, what happens in verse 8, it kind of takes on a whole new wrinkle. Like everyone else, Daniel. He's in Babylon, swept up in the tide of everything that's going on until we read, but Daniel purposed in his heart. Like, Like the idea behind this word purposed it's an indicator. It's a transition. It tells us that Daniel resolved within himself, or that, or that he made up in this moment, he made up his mind, or he gathered his convictions. I love to have one, how one scholar translates this, this Hebrew word. He says it means to, to pull together. It's to get it together. Have you ever been in that situation where everything is kind of like there's a, it's chaos and, and everything is spiraling out of control and you don't know what to do and you're freaking out and then there's a moment you're like, get it together. But Daniel, that's what's happening. He makes a decision in a moment. What's caused that reaction? Well, first, broadly, he's been taken from Judah, his home, and placed into Babylonian exile. That's a traumatic experience. Well, Daniel didn't likely believe the words of Jeremiah the prophet in the moment. And in all likelihood, he scoffed along with the rest of the population. You can can figure that as Daniel is making this long walk from Jerusalem to Babylon, the words of Jeremiah are ringing in his ears, aren't they? He had to concede. The prophet had been right all along. What he was experiencing had been the judgment of God, the hand of God, you know, in a twist of irony. Again, what does Daniel's name mean? It means, and would serve to remind him, Yahweh is judge. Secondly, his transformation, keep in mind, from being a child of God to a Babylonian servant was this close to completion. They changed his speech and dress. They gave him access to the king's delicacies. They immersed him in Babylonian culture and thought. They stripped him of his Hebrew name and identity, replacing it with one that recognized now the dominion of a a pagan deity. The very sign in his flesh that was to remind him of his faith had been cut off. Daniel, Daniel is in a very dangerous place. He's no longer in the land of promise. He's been exiled to Babylon via the judgment of God. A choice for what Daniel would do would have to be made sooner than later, or that choice would be made for him if he dithered. On one side of the equation, there was the lure of Babylon. Life apart from God? Man, he sat at the, the, the table of the king. It was pretty good. The delicacies of the king looked great. On the flip side, as Daniel's processing all of this, it was true that any type of stand, well, that could be dicey. He wasn't exactly free to make his own decisions. Could he really afford to make demands? Wouldn't there be blowback? And once more, as Daniel's thinking it through, was there even a point at this moment of of taking a stand? Like he's in exile because God was punishing him. God had judged them. If God threw him and his life into chaos, if he was done, then wouldn't it just be wise to make the the most of a, a bad situation? Daniel, as he's thinking these things through, has to ask, was God really through with him? Like, did he actually have still a future? Could God still use his life to make an impact? You know, one of the interesting components about the timing of Daniel's life growing up in Jerusalem is that King Josiah had brought back to the forefront of the national conscience the law of God. As Daniel considers that his plight had been predicted long ago via the warnings of God recorded in Leviticus 26, I believe the continuation of that same passage likely weighed heavily on his heart. And in the end, I think that passage influenced the decision that Daniel makes in verse 8. Speaking to the very people who would be taken away into exile during the judgment. God makes this statement in Leviticus 26. He says, but... If they, speaking of those taken into exile, if they confess their iniquity, the iniquity of their fathers, with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I have walked contrary to them, have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, and they accept their guilt, because they despise my judgments, and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, God says, when they are in the land of their enemies... I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt and the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I know there's a measure of conjecture to my thesis, but I believe When Ashpenaz strips Daniel of his name, gives him a pagan substitute, and then took from him the sign in his flesh as to the covenant God had made with him, something inside of this young man, it clicked. He knew right then and there that a moment, a decision, had to be made. A line had to be drawn in the sand. Daniel's own sin had contributed to his judgment, at least according to Leviticus 26. And he's in exile because God was using the Babylonians to enact punishment. However, Daniel also knew from the testimony of God's word that even in exile, God had promised his grace was still available. As he said, if they confess their iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers. So they own their faults. If they confess their unfaithfulness, how they've walked contrary to me or in opposition to the Lord, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, if they humble themselves and accept their guilt, God promises He would not only remember His covenant, not only would He not cast them away, but He would be their God. From my perspective, verse 8, it doesn't record the resolve of a godly kid raised by godly parents, who doesn't want to defile himself. Instead, I believe verse eight is the record of Daniel's conversion. But Daniel purpose in his heart. See, that's the moment that Daniel repents of his own sin. And he says, "Enough is enough." And he makes a decision to return again to his covenant relationship with the Lord. We'll get to this next week. But this explains why Daniel, it explains why he refuses to eat the king's delicacies. And taking this stand, Daniel, (laughs) he's got no idea what would happen next. But he acts on a belief in God's word and faith in God's promises that they were sure. He trusts that God's grace won't let him down now. Spoiler for next next study. In verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart. And then in response, we read in verse 9, Now God brought Daniel favor into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Now, I love the way the ESV translates this verse. Literally. And God gave Daniel grace and compassion and the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. As we close out our time together, I'm going to leave you with with one final thought. While Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah will be referred to by their Babylonian names throughout this book by the pagan players involved, they will never once refer to themselves using such terms. In fact, as one example, on four different occasions, Daniel will write, I, Daniel, I'm not Belshazzar, I'm Daniel. Babylon. We'll get into the spirit of Babylon, how these things tie into to the world. But it's the truth that Babylon is into name-calling <laughs> and rebranding. Babylon believes changing the names of these young men would in turn transform their identity. And yet Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they refused to play along. You see, their identity was not found in the names the Babylonians tried to impart to them. Their identity was found in the names that God had given them from birth. What a cool picture. As a Christian, this world is also into name-calling. And it does this because it wants to influence the way you see yourself. But no. The very moment you were born again, when the Holy Spirit filled your heart in response to the faith you had placed in Jesus and His sacrifice, in that moment, faith in Jesus and dwelling of God's Spirit, the Father then bestowed to you, He gave you a new name to help you understand your new nature and identity. But well, we find ourselves living in Babylon, a culture into name-calling. Never forget, God has declared who we are. He's given us the name. He's called us saints, citizens of heaven, Ambassadors of Christ, disciples of the Master, the elect of God, friends of Jesus, heirs, instruments of righteousness, kings and priests, lights in the darkness, pilgrims and strangers, the redeemed, temples of the living God, the undefiled, vessels of mercy. Friend, you and I, our name, we are new creations in Christ Jesus. While you and I might presently find ourselves living in Babylon as well, Don't forget, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were useful to the Lord and they were blessed by the Lord because they refused to let Babylon and that culture and that system define who they were. God had given them names. God had made them His children. And that was the one thing Babylon couldn't take from them, and it's the one thing this world can never take from you and I. So Father, Lord, we just let that word settle into our hearts.